According to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again as we get started in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, picking up from last week with the burial of Jesus. I left Him hanging on the cross for three weeks when I went to Ukraine, but came back from Ukraine and... uh, We got him off the cross last week. Episode 39 in the Harmony of the Gospels is the burial of Jesus. Episode 40, the tomb is sealed. And episode 41, uh, women watch. Those are the headlines that uh, were given based on the Harmony of the Gospels that we are making use of. All right, Matthew 27 really starts in verse 57 and it's going to take us all the way down through uh, the end of the chapter, down to verse 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. All right, that's about as far as we got last week. We need to move on to verses 62 and following. The uh, complaint that the Pharisees had and uh, the chief priests, the religious leaders, uh, they're concerned uh, based upon his his messages that he was not going to stay dead that he claimed that he would rise again on the third day. And it's amazing how these unbelievers actually paid more attention to this message than Jesus' disciples did. (laughs) Jesus' disciples didn't have, uh, of course, neither group had faith. The unbelievers don't have any faith, but at least they listened. And they had an intellectual understanding of what it was he was talking about. The disciples did not. And I find that to be quite quite an interesting contrast. So, With that being said, let's start with some prayer. Let's make sure we're not like the disciples, uh, walking in unbelief or being out of fellowship in any respect. Let's uh, humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you provided for us. We just uh, rejoice at this opportunity to uh, open the Scriptures and uh, to allow you to open our minds to understand the Scriptures, Father. We ask, we call upon your faithfulness in the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit that uh, you would uh, give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to comprehend. We thank you for this opportunity in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We, uh, see, I'll just zip on through the points we looked at a week ago. Point one with some sub-points. The Jewish religious leaders wanted to hurry up and get Jesus out of public view. Now, uh, I think that this was really their prime motivation. Uh, Remember that they were very interested in not causing a scene within the temple itself. Uh, They were very thankful to have a midnight opportunity in the privacy of the darkness to uh, get him arrested, to conduct the trials that they could under darkness, uh, to get him as, uh, as crucified as quickly as possible. And now, uh, let's hurry up and get him off of there. We've, we've done what we want done. Let's get him off that cross. Let's get him buried. Let's get him out of sight. And, uh, and I find that interesting. 
Of course, they have the ostensible uh, public reason that, oh, well, we want to follow Scripture. Oh, we, we don't want to violate the, uh, the prohibitions. You know, uh, We have Sabbath coming up and Sabbath preparations uh, before the sun goes down. And so uh, these, uh, I think, provide a convenient excuse, which I list for you under subpoint A. Sabbath and preparation necessities provided a convenient excuse. And we're going to learn very quickly that even once the Sabbath does come, that is the next morning, uh, they are uh, not at all concerned about keeping the Sabbath. They're going to get very busy working on the Sabbath by going to Pilate and and, uh, complaining about his resurrection claims and by posting a guard and putting a seal on the uh, the stone that Joseph had rolled uh, there the night before. And so uh, it is. It becomes quite interesting how much work these guys are going to do on this particular Saturday, on Saturday, April fourth, thirty-three A.D. These guys are working uh, a considerable amount of work on this uh, high Sabbath day. All right. So there's their excuse. Um, the opportunity to break the legs. We took a little bit of a look at under point B. Breaking the legs was common to speed the process. That's from the Roman perspective. Uh, and leaving the body overnight would have violated Scripture from the Jews' perspective. And so, because they're very concerned, they don't want to violate Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, right? And yes, I know, you're overwhelmed by their biblical concern to not violate Scripture, you know. Like that command, thou shalt not murder, you know. <laughs> they don't, that doesn't seem to bother them any. They'll, they'll, they'll murder Jesus. Uh, they just won't call it murder. Because remember, in their minds, they're serving God. In their minds... Uh, you know, he's a, he's a blasphemer and he should be put to death. And so uh, never, never uh, discount the amount of uh, satanic zeal that somebody will go through in the thought that they're serving God, all right? And days will come that they'll think they're serving God when they persecute you, and we're warned about. So uh, there we have it. Obviously, broken bones will not be allowed. God would not permit the bones to be broken because typology did not allow for any broken bones. There could be no broken bone in the Passover lamb, according to Exodus 12:46. And beyond that, we have explicit prophecy in Psalm 34:20 that not a bone of him shall be broken. And so clearly, if the Romans would have broken his bones, then that would have violated both the typology and the prophecy. And uh, God was not going to allow that to happen. And uh, in fact, I think this was a component within our Lord's considerations when he voluntarily concluded his physical life. He knew to Telestai that the spiritual work was done. He announced it is finished. He was the kinsman redeemer and his sacrifice on our behalf was complete. It was satisfactory. It was done. And so nothing left to do now except uh, commit his spirit in the hands of God the Father to breathe his last, to expire physically so that he could descend into Sheol and then begin his next work assignment, which he'll do during the, the uh, time of his, uh, of his burial. By the way, our, the harmony of the Gospels we are following does not include a separate episode for our Savior going and preaching to the saints or to the, uh, to the uh, prisoners there in Sheol. And so... Uh, perhaps before we move on to event 42, um, actually there's no 42, before we move on to the resurrection events, uh, event one in the next section of the harmony, um, we may take a Wednesday to explore the victorious proclamation and some of the uh, activity that took place there when the rulers and the authorities were disarmed, when God the Father made the public triumph over them in Christ. And uh, I think those are valuable scriptures to uh, 
to consider. All right. So the voluntary conclusion to physical life was another facet of the Lord's complete obedience. When you read through Hebrews, particularly Hebrews 10, or any, really all the chapters in Hebrews, or the Gospel of John, you see Jesus did not come to do his own will. He did not have his own message. He was not uh, uh, glorifying himself. Jesus was all about uh, exegeting the Father, unfolding the Father, revealing God the Father, teaching the Father's message, doing the Father's work, accomplishing the Father's good pleasure. And a body thou hast prepared for me was Jesus Christ recognizing that he was here according to the Father's plan, the Father's design, the Father's preparations. And so he uh, did everything in obedience to the Father's will. Finally, point D, Jesus' death was verified by the piercing spear and testified by John's personal eyewitness. And when you read in John 19, verses 34 and 35, let me grab that real quick. John 19, verses 34 and 35. They um, came, they were breaking the legs. They came to Jesus. They found that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. Now, the blood and the water coming out, the, the breakdown of, of the uh, internal fluids within the body, it's quite an interesting study, and I'm not medically um, trained or, or uh, qualified to render on this, but there's some interesting commentaries that discuss post-mortem effects. What begins to happen when the body is physically dead? What starts to happen in the blood? What starts to happen in the internal organs? And I recommended uh, M.R. Dahan. Uh, last week. And I forgot, somebody asked me if I would send them that information, and I forgot who asked me that. So if it was you, um, send me an email to keep me from forgetting, all right? Because I will forget. But the email will sit there in my inbox and not let me forget and, uh, until I reply to it and give you the, uh, the information on M.R. Dahan. There's about three different Dahan generations. Uh, you want the grandfather, you want the old man, the man that's in heaven, not the grandson <clears throat> the grandfather father and grandson are all uh bible teachers all in ministry have been for for many many years but you want the old man that did the he was a medical doctor before he uh he began his bible study so in any event his uh his writings are interesting all right so uh this also fulfilled scripture and looks forward to the additional fulfillment in the second advent of Jesus Christ. The recognition that we have Scripture quoted here in John 19. Uh, when we see in verse 36, these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And so we have the Old Testament fulfilled. But we also have a prophetic Scripture. They shall look upon him whom they pierced. They shall look upon him whom they pierce. That's not a first advent prophecy. That's a second advent prophecy that demands um, a rejection of the Messiah in his first advent. All right. You know, in first advent, they're looking to, uh, to somebody born of a virgin, looking to somebody born in Bethlehem, looking for somebody humble and riding on a colt. But for second advent fulfillment, they're looking upon their rejected Messiah, the Christ whom they have pierced. And this is uh, really a remarkable remarkable uh, prophecy from Zechariah chapter 12. All right, we also, uh, last week under point two, provided some information related to Joseph of Arimathea, and we almost got through the end of this. We got through 2E, 
And then uh, I thought we were ready to move on to point three this morning, but no, we have an actual 2F now before we move on to, uh, to point three. Joseph of Arimathea approached Pilate with a request of his own. And here's, here's the contrast. Uh, the, uh, we saw the uh, religious leaders, they, heard, they approached Pilate and their request was, you know, break his legs, kill him faster. Let's get him, let's get him dead and buried as quick as we can. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea comes with a request of his own and he's very humble, very respectful, requesting that he might have uh, the privilege and the blessing to spend a considerable expense. I mean, just the dollar value alone in these spices, in these oils, in the in the linen, in the and uh, the you know you say the lost value that he's going to lose value on the on the grave. Uh, I personally don't think that was much of a consideration because uh, if Joseph was truly walking by faith and he understood that he wasn't really losing this grave, he was only you know leasing it out for the weekend. That. <laughs> It is, uh, it is his uh, unused grave, his new grave, and, and then, uh, you know, on Sunday he can have it back uh, when it comes down to that. So uh, we have the record again in all four Gospels with Joseph of Arimathea approaching Pilate in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Uh, subpoint A, uh, the location for Arimathea, nobody knows, okay? Even to this day, there is considerable debate and uh, not a unanimous, certain identification. There's really three leading candidates. Possible Old Testament equivalents include Rama, mentioned in Joshua 18.25. And, and I'm not really spending the time to walk us through each of these locations. We could, but uh, you got Rama in a lot of passages, including Joshua 18.25. Ramathiam Zothim, mentioned in 1 Samuel 1, that's the birthplace of Samuel, and there are good reasons why that might be um, the possible identification with Arimathea. Uh, another possible uh, location, maybe the one with the best secular evidence for it, is uh, a place called Ramathem, uh, or Ramatham, uh, not mentioned in the Bible, but it is mentioned in uh, Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 11.34. And in particular, it was a city that was ceded to the Maccabean kings, part of the spoils of victory when they had uh, won their independence against uh, the Seleucids. And um, that may also be a good location. Fundamentally, though, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I mean, if, okay, Joseph of Arimathea, the only time that the name Arimathea is mentioned in the Gospels is when it's connected to Joseph of and uh, when it's in connection with the burial of Jesus. So, you know, if it was Joseph of, of Pflugerville, um, <laughs> would it impact our doctrine? <laughs> would, it, would it impact our uh, understanding of what's happening here with this believing Pharisee, this undercover Christian, uh, this undercover believer, not, well, you know, Old Testament believer, um, you know, I think that's much more significant than the actual locality of, of Arimathea. Matthew's description of J-O-A, my abbreviation, big J, little O, big A, not to be confused with the J-T-B, that was my other abbreviation for John the Baptist, uh, but J-O-A. Matthew calls him a rich man and a disciple of Jesus. We read that already this morning. Mark tells us that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, which is quite interesting because most of the wealthy people had a hard time coming to faith in Christ. 
Uh, most of the wealthy people, Jesus said it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. There weren't many wealthy that were following Christ in his lifetime. And yet, uh, even though he was wealthy in this life, Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. That's what he was looking forward to. And uh, we're told that explicitly in Mark 15. And also, there's a fascinating idiom there that he had to gather up his courage. Gather up his courage. All right? As if uh, it was something that you kind of store away. You know? Get a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and you kind of gather it together. And when you have enough of it piled up, then you can go and do what needs to be done. And uh, interesting idiom there that, uh, that Mark described. In Luke's account, Luke also, this is a point D, Luke also identifies Joseph as a member of the Sanhedrin, but makes clear that he was not in favor of Jesus' conviction. Not in favor of Jesus' conviction. I, I also believe he may not have even been present for that vote, um, given that if they knew his sympathies or suspected them, uh, then he would not have been called in to that vote. Did, did they have all 70 people there that night? And you know, Did they have all 72 there that night? Um, likely not, all right, when it comes down to it. Finally then, in John's account, uh, we have the description of how uh, Joseph received assistance from Nicodemus. And he's, he is somebody we understand uh, going back to chapter 3. Not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but recorded in, uh, in the Gospel of John. That uh, Nicodemus also provided assistance. And uh, we're told in uh, verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. And they took the body, and, and that, by the way, is not... you got to look that up related to the Greek and... Uh, I don't think it was a literal 100 pounds, like I weigh 200 pounds, not half my body weight. I think it's an expression that we have a a remnant from um, British poundage, I think, (laughs) that comes out uh, from the King James into the New American Standard. In any event, there's a good dollar value connected to this. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, who else was going to do this, by the way? If Josephus and if, if Joseph and Nicodemus didn't do this, who else was going to do it? Was Mary going to do this? Was uh, you know his brothers going to do this? They weren't even believers. All right, not till after the resurrection, we're told. Who else was going to do this? Was John going to do this? And it's interesting. Um, also, Scripture never tells us who buries the other two. You know, the penitent thief and the and the rebellious thief, and, and you know who buried them. Scripture doesn't say, and Scripture doesn't care. Okay? I don't care. The, the point is, is that this burial had to be part of the full observance in the angelic conflict. Because Jesus is going to come uh, back to life. He's going to be restored to physical life. He's going to be resurrected and glorified you know, on this coming Sunday. And uh, all of these steps in between have to be witnessed. And that's what the Scripture record here is doing for us. All right. Point F. The specific details, the specific details recorded in the Gospels brings the Isaiah 53 prophecy into vivid focus. Specifically, Isaiah 53, 9. Join me there. These specific details recorded in the Gospels bring the Isaiah 53 prophecy into vivid focus. This is interesting because the skeptics will say, well, they did that on purpose. 
They knew what the prophecies were. They, they artificially tried to fulfill as much as they could so they could say, see, see, he was the Christ. And they, they view it as being a phony fulfillment, just artificially manipulated by Jesus and his followers. Problem with that, have you encountered that? The problem with that <laughs> is that this conspiracy theory alleges uh, some very active participation and contributions from our Savior's enemies, all right? From the Romans, from the Sanhedrin, from uh, a whole lot of folks that had no interest in trying to puff up uh, an artificial claim to Messianic Scripture fulfillment, all right? So many things were out of his complete and total control that uh, it really (coughs) comes through as a weak, weak argument. Not only that, beyond Isaiah 53 are additional burial messages throughout Isaiah. And they don't often get looked at in this connection, but I think it's worth our time to do so. So the specific details recorded in the Gospels brings the Isaiah 53 prophecy into vivid focus, specifically Isaiah 53.9, but the larger context as well along with additional grave-slash-burial messages throughout Isaiah. This is a prophet who had quite a bit to say about the grave, and specifically in connection with Israel, in connection with their Messiah. Chapter 14, chapter 22, chapter 53, chapter 65. There is a sequence of grave and burial messages that I think, if you combine them and look at them all in totality, we get a remarkable... um, remarkable understanding in terms of the angelic conflict in terms of the fall of satan in terms of the contrast between satan and christ and i think it's uh it's a neat thing to consider in a much larger scope of of the father's grace eternal plan this is uh and this is a a uh, privilege we have to look at the alpha to the omega to have the complete panorama of the of god the father's program for the ages when you assign uh, some conspiracy on the part of, you know, first century Galilean fishermen, you're giving them much more credit than, than you ought to, <laughs> right? Because they had no access to mystery doctrine. They had no access to things that you and I have access to in the completed canon of Scripture. The complete panorama from Alpha to Omega, uh, they had bits of it, they had parts of it, but they didn't have the the royal family of God in Christ. They didn't have the the uh, the things the, the the full understanding the way we do and the idea of being able to go back through isaiah 14 isaiah 22 isaiah 53 isaiah 65 and give a pretty comprehensive view of things i think was uh beyond anything that might be expected of an old testament believer i'll show you what i mean by that as we look at each one of these all right let's start with isaiah 53 isaiah 53 9 you know how can how can you be a criminal and celebrated at the same time? You know, the criminal is put to death and buried in shame. Um, and yet here he is, and it seems to be contradictory, but both are true. All right. So, um, and, you know, we can read the whole chapter. I love this chapter. Um, recognizing that this is the, uh, the suffering servant. Uh, verse 3 tells us uh, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. 
Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So He was our substitute. He took what was not His. He took what was ours. He did so voluntarily. He accepted it. And it wasn't at the hand of man this was done. It was God Himself who struck Him, who smit Him. We're told there in verse 4. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. The benefit to what He accomplished was entirely for our sake. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. You remember the occasions where he testified to his kingship in front of Pilate, but other occasions where he remained absolutely silent in front of uh, Herod, for example? Why was he silent in front of the high priest? Why was he silent in front of Herod? Why did he testify to his kingship in front of Pilate? We, we talked about that each, each time that uh, we encountered that during his trials. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. That's verse 8. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. Now, verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. There he was crucified between two murderers, two terrorists, we would call them today, Lestes. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Why would a rich man like Joseph of Arimathea spend all that time, spend all that money, and leave himself ceremonially defiled as soon as he touches that corpse, then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus both just forsook all of their Passover observances, all of their um, Sabbath observances, all of their Feast of Unleavened Bread observances, all these things that follow. This is one of the most sacred uh, times in the Jewish calendar, and they are rendering themselves ceremonially uncleaned in order to bury Jesus Christ. So his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, if Jesus is faithful, accomplishing the work assignment for his death, then after his death will come blessing upon blessing upon blessing. This verse demands the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How much of that was Joseph aware of? How much of that was Joseph confident in? Well, we're left to speculate because the text doesn't exactly tell us other than he was looking for the kingdom. Okay? Now, this is not the only prophecy in Isaiah that speaks of graves and speaks of burials. Let's look back to Isaiah 14. Remember this passage, Isaiah 14? It's quite a different destiny for the adversary. We have a taunt. A taunt that is... uh, given by the Lord to uh, Isaiah to deliver to the people of Israel. 
And this taunt is uh, introduced here in verse 4. At that time when Yahweh gives you, uh, in the day when Yahweh gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, on that day you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased. And then starting in verse 4, we have this taunt. And this taunt is all about the downfall of the oppressor, the downfall of fury. And uh, the blessings of what's going to happen when Jesus rules with a rod of iron and uh, subdues the nations here. The whole earth will be at rest and quiet. It will break forth into shouts of joy. At least in the early days of the millennium, that will be the reaction. And uh, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. All excited when he finally arrives. The downfall of this one will be long anticipated. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, the Rephaim. They're going to celebrate when Satan arrives. All the leaders of the earth, the great Nephilim conquerors, the mighty men of old that legends were written about before the flood. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. You understand what a taunt that is? Because this is the, the, the rebel who said, I will be like the Most High God. And these guys jump up and shout, you have become like one of us. <laughs> oh, that's going to be painful. Your pomp and the music of your harps have brought you down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. <laughs> what a taunt. All right. How you have fallen from heaven, Halel ben Shachar. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. The Latin Vulgate has Lucifer there, and he's often been thought of as Lucifer uh, before his fall. I think it's better instead of Latin, go ahead and use the Hebrew from this verse. Call him Halel. Call him Halel ben Shachar. And it's interesting how many of the highly regarded Jewish rabbis were all called Halel. All right. But you said in your heart, I will ascend. I will, I will, I will, I will. Five I wills. And he's not going to ascend. He's going to descend. He's not like the Most High. He's like all the, uh, the other dead that are thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Verse 16, those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? who made the world like a wilderness, like a tohu wilderness, as per Genesis 1-2 in Jeremiah chapter 4. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness, who overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? You know, when the war is almost over and you know the Allies are about to uh, liberate your concentration camps... What do you do? Well, you know, you decide people like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer are not going to see freedom on the other side of the war. And so you accelerate your executions and, and uh, all the evil that goes on there. Okay. 
All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. All right, then it closes in verse 21. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. The Nephilim hybrids are not going to be allowed to rise and conquer the realm of humanity. All right. So there's our first grave burial message from Isaiah, and it is a taunt against Satan. Chapter 22 has our next one. Chapter 22 and verse 16. Now, this chapter is remarkable. We have a... um, hmm, I really want to teach Isaiah someday. (laughs) All right. What happens here is we have a faithless uh, steward. And what happens with a faithless steward? Uh, Starting in verse 15, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here, and whom do you have here, that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height, you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. So we have a faithless steward here, one that's trying to build a name for himself, one that's trying to build a monument or a legacy for after he's gone, he'll have a place of glory, a place for people to come and view and be all impressed with this guy. Okay, And you say, who is this guy? I never heard of Shebna before this morning. Well, good. That's part of the Father's plan. Uh, you've heard of David, right? You've heard of uh, the obedient kings, the sons of David. Those are the names that God wants to exalt for all eternity. Um, but here's Shebna trying to make a name for himself. In a lot of ways, Shebna is a human reflection of Satan. He has the same attitudes that Satan has of self-promotion, self-exaltation. So behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. There you will die and there your splendid chariots will be. You shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office. I will pull you down from your station. Remember a steward serves at the pleasure of the one who appointed him and it's required of a steward to be found faithful and a faithless shepherd or a faithless steward is to be deposed is to be removed then it will come about in that day that i will summon my servant eliakim the son of hilkiah i will clothe him with your tunic tie your sash securely about him all right understand if you're faithless in your work assignment god will fire you he has somebody else that can take your place the whole plan of God is not revolving around you, all right? And uh, all the prideful thing that, oh, you know, I'm so special, and oh, God really owes me a lot, and oh, uh, you know, I do so much for God. What would he do without me, okay? I tell you, if you develop that satanic attitude, God will show you what he will do without you because he will fire you in a heartbeat and replace you with a humble servant. 
So I'll clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority. He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Now that's language that in the book of Revelation is given to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Eliakim son of Hilkiah. Okay? In the typology of what this passage is pointing forward to. You've got prideful servants that get replaced by humble servants. And Jesus Christ is the essence of the ultimate humble servant. The one who has the key of David for all eternity. The one who opens and no man will shut. The one who shuts and no one will open. We're familiar with Revelation chapter 3. All right. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. That's a reward, by the way. You want to be a peg? I think being a peg is a good thing. If you're well-driven, then you're useful. You know, you're secure, you're stable. People can hang on you, right? Right? cloaks can hang on you coats and jackets and you know you can do a lot with a peg that's firmly driven he will become a a throne of glory to his father's house so they will hang him in the glory of his father's house offspring and issue all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars say well i want to be a bowl i want to be a jar i want to be a vessel well how about if you're just a faithful peg that hangs there that the vessel can uh, rely on Okay, that's a valuable vase. You don't want it to fall off the wall and smash. Okay, are you willing to be a a useful peg? Well-driven, dependable, strong? Okay, you're not designed to be a a, a pot. You're designed to be a peg. Are you okay with that? Anyway, there's there's a whole lot there. It's a good message. A lot of imagery, a lot of um, doctrine that I think comes out of, of that particular message. So what have we seen? We've seen pride in Satan's downfall. We've seen pride and humility in the contrast of these two stewards. We've seen ultimate humility in Isaiah 53 and the promise that he will see his prosperity, he will have eternal rewards because he was faithful until death as the suffering Messiah. And now the last of the grave burial messages is Isaiah 65.4. Isaiah 65.4. passage we actually uh, considered in the process of teaching Romans chapter 9. I permitted myself to be sought by those, this is verse 1 of Isaiah 65, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, "Here here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. Now who's he talking about there? He's talking about Israel and their rebellion. And yet God kept revealing Himself. God stayed faithful. God stayed faithful. There's a secondary fulfillment of that when, it, when you bring it into mystery doctrine and we see a church fulfillment because we are a people who did not used to be a people. We are a nation that did not used to be a nation. So there's a duality to understand here, but let's, let's leave it with Israel for this morning. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. 
So our final reference to graves and burials in the book of Isaiah is interesting because it talks about what believers get into when they reject the will of God for their lives. How quickly do you find yourself in witchcraft and demonism when you fall away from the faith and you pay attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons and you reject the message of the risen Savior and you start to plunge into the darkness of witchcraft and graves and things that happen here. Um, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. <laughs> These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. All right, well, there's judgment and consequence that comes because of that. In any event, I find it interesting. The prophet Isaiah is a prophet that mentions graves and burials four different times throughout his message, and each one I find to be a kind of an interesting connection in contrast with the person of our Savior. And uh, not just Isaiah 53, but the whole spectrum of what Isaiah was dealing with 700 years before the birth of Christ. All right. Well, he's dead and buried, so we're done, right? No, not quite. (laughs) Point three, the successful murderers are still afraid. The successful murderers are still afraid. Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66. You know, are, they, are they breathing a big sigh of relief now? <sighs> He's dead, finally. No, they're not. They're not. And we observe this. We observe it throughout the Scriptures. We observe this in experience in the Christian walk. When you observe those that are walking in darkness, what satisfies them? Nothing. <laughs> even when they think they've succeeded, even when they achieve what their dark dreams told them they wanted? Is there satisfaction in that? Is there, does that produce within their soul that capacity of joy that only the Father can? Of course not. There is no satisfaction to the wicked. So the successful murderers are still afraid. They're still afraid. And as we look at it here in verse 62... On the next day, the day after the preparation. So what is that? That's the Sabbath. It's the Saturday now, or at least after sundown, Friday night. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. What were they doing that for? Shouldn't they be home with their families? Shouldn't they be eating the Passover? Shouldn't they be celebrating the Sabbath? Shouldn't they be getting ready for the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the the, uh, days that now follow? No, we need another conference with Pilate. So they petitioned Pilate to put him on a cross. They petitioned Pilate to break his legs and get him off the cross. Now they're bugging him a third time. So I'm going to enter point A. I highlight that the chief priests and Pharisees are sure working hard on this particular Sabbath day. The chief priests and the Pharisees are sure working hard on this particular Sabbath day. And I laugh. I think this is uh, hilarious. And then they call him a liar. This brood of vipers. Point B. These sons of the devil deceitfully call Jesus that deceiver. These sons of the devil, who remember was the liar from the beginning, these, the brood of vipers, Jesus called them. And boy, was he right. John the Baptist called them the same thing. 
the sons of the devil deceitfully call Jesus that deceiver in verse 63. So the Pharisees gather together with Pilate. I have a hard time reading this verse without getting mad. <laughs> you know? And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm to rise again. Hmm. After three days, I'm to rise again. Isn't that something? Talk about calling good evil and evil good. These guys are liars. They're sons of the liar from the beginning. And they call him the liar. So therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Well, what are they afraid of? (laughs) You know, if he's a liar, then it's not true. It's not going to happen. And if he's a dead liar, now you've got two reasons to not be afraid of him anymore. Why are you still afraid? Well, see, his disciples might come and steal him away. Because he's a liar, and he trains his disciples to also be liars. Well, what might make them think that? Why might they think in terms of uh, trained liars imitating the liar who's training them? Because <laughs> this is the story of their life. <laughs> Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and this last deception will be worse than the first. You understand, this lie is still told today. This is still a theory today of the God-haters and Bible-rejectors that say that Jesus did, there was no resurrection. The disciples stole the body. You'll encounter people today that will try to make that claim. Nevertheless, biblically, all the evidence is, and with not just biblical testimony, but secular testimony, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no more documented historical event in the history of mankind. They fear the masses being swayed by manipulative fraud. Hmm. wonder why. <laughs> they fear the masses being swayed by manipulative fraud. I believe it shows you exactly how their minds work. This is their stock in trade. This is why they have power. It's not because they're teaching with authority. <laughs> We've already established that. Jesus spoke with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. They fear the masses being swayed by manipulative fraud. By the way, How many local churches operate on the same basis? They set up religiosity. They set up systems of manipulative fraud. There's no reality to it. God the Father is supposed to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. When they get this frenzy, they whip up people into a frenzy. Is that from the Holy Spirit? Or what spirit is that? And we, we do these mindless chantings and, and this you, you get into a hypnotic buzz with, with a large group. And uh, the right drumbeat, the right music, the right manipulation can put crowds into, into, a, into a state. It's designed to do that. And after the 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, hour of this, 
now they're receptive to the uh, manipulation that then follows. It's not accidental. Not naming names. <laughs> I'm just illustrating. Make your own application if you've ever observed it. Just consider what's, what's the purpose for this taking place? Is it spirit and in truth? Is it your rational service of worship at work there? Is it rational or irrational? Is it emotional? Is it thoughtful or thoughtless? Okay. If you have to empty your mind in meditation so that uh, something can then pop in there, why is that? And what might you think will pop in there if you've emptied your mind and taken your armor off? Now, biblical meditation isn't an emptying of your mind. It's a filling your mind with the truth of God's Word and chewing on it and digesting it and thrilling on it, letting uh, the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, He was citing Scripture. He quoted Psalm 22. He refreshed His soul with doctrine. Hmm. Point D. The result of this ridiculous farce is actually... A multiplied testimony to the resurrection. I love the way the Father turns the wrath of man into his own glory. And he promised he would do so. The result of this ridiculous farce is actually a multiplied testimony to the resurrection. If they would have just walked away, not posted their own guards, not posted the Roman guards, not put the seals on the stone. <laughs> If they'd have just walked away, then the only eyewitness would have been those women that showed up early in the morning, Sunday morning. But now there's multiple witnesses. Now there's Roman soldiers. They're going to be bribed. They're going to be asked to testify to falling asleep on guard duty, which is a punish, punishable by death. <laughs> you want me to confess to something that, that would get me executed? <laughs> you know, are you kidding? You, you don't have enough money for that. You know how far I'm going to run? It's interesting. And so we have a multiplied testimony to the resurrection. We have the undeniable testimony to the resurrection. Multiple witnesses. Multiple witnesses. You know, this was written during the lifetime of the people that were still alive that could either validate it or reject it. How brave do you got to be to put it in writing that the Pharisees bribed the Roman guards when all the parties involved are still on hand? Go ask them. Look into it. Okay? Paul says there's more than 500 that saw the resurrected Christ, most of whom are still alive. Okay? Go ask them. The New Testament was written in very quick order. And it's a, it's a powerful testimony to its... Uh, genuine accounts. So they actually multiply. Look what happens here. Um, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went, they made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Their own proof. Their own proof that it wasn't tampered with. Okay. Multiplying the testimony to the resurrection. We'll talk about that when we get into the 
the resurrection of Christ. Now, it's interesting, this eyewitness, point four, the last thing we'll say in this episode. You know, the eyewitness testimony of the women. Every gospel discusses it. Well, the synoptic gospels at least discuss it. Um... I don't know that we have an account in John that discusses it per se. But in Matthew 27, 61, Mark 15, 47, Luke 23, 55, and 56, we have women, eyewitness of the burial, eyewitness of the sealing of the tomb, and eyewitness on Sunday morning when that stone is rolled away and Jesus appears to them. Now, this may not be important to their contemporary legal system. The testimony of a woman was worthless, or virtually, half that of a man. Half that of a man. It still is to this day in in Muslim uh, traditions. Not even half, it's a fourth. All right? Because in in the Quran, women are explained that, uh, you know, women are just naturally deficient and uh, mentally just unreliable. But even in, uh, that's, that's the Arab culture, the codified in the Quran for the Muslim religion. But even in the, in the Jewish tradition, under Roman law and under Jewish culture, the, the value of a, of a woman's testimony was inferior. And so it's, it's interesting that this is what God chooses to use for his own testimony. I think it's very important as an apologetic for the accuracy of the resurrection account. Because it, it proves that, that the nature of this testimony is, is such that it actually promotes more accuracy to its legitimate reality. It argues against forgery and fraud. Because if uh, indeed this was all manipulation on the part of the disciples... And if they were, if they had faked the the resurrection, if they had stolen the body, if they had whatever, if they were, if they were manipulators, serving a lie, then they would have come up with a better lie. <laughs> they would have had more reliable eyewitnesses. They would have put forth Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They would have put forth men of high authority and standing and to, to stand forth on the record. But neither of those men were there Sunday morning. And, and they didn't write a bunch of lies in the Bible to try to produce better eyewitnesses. The Bible records the eyewitnesses they had. And that actually becomes an apologetic for the accuracy of the resurrection account. Many of these accounts do. The, the, the narrative of Peter's denials is another example. The apologetic of embarrassment you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna create a new religion, if you're gonna forge something, you're gonna you're gonna paint your your founders, your heroes in the in the most awesome, magnificent, glorious light you possibly can. All mythology does that. All inventions do that. Not the Bible. You know, there's King David and his adultery. There's Peter and his denials. There's Abraham and his fear and lie about his sister David. You know, his his wife and sister Sarah. Um, this apologetic of, of embarrassment, I think, is, is very um, convincing. I've actually used it effectively with a whole lot of folks that understand that, yeah, you know what? It, it is a note of authenticity. It also is a note of, of appreciation 
with uh, with folks that realize that being a Christian doesn't mean living up to this impossible, uh, got to be perfect, uh, you know, I got to be, if I'm not a perfect person, then somehow I'm not worthy of going to church or I'm not, I'm not, uh, worthy of, of being, uh, being a Christian. No, it's about walking in grace and watching the father transform you. How about that? <laughs> and we all stumble in many portions and in many ways, but you know, the grace of God, we get picked back up again. And so there it is. All right. And we're done. That's events 39, 40, and 41. We'll come back uh, next week, and I think I will. I would, I would like to uh, describe some of the, uh, some of the uh, underworld events that take place before the actual resurrection. So before we move on to the resurrection account and the next segment of our Harmony of the Gospels, we'll at least have a class that will address, uh, we'll address that. So we'll plan on that for next Wednesday. Um, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this uh, blessing that we have to show ourselves approved and rightly dividing the word of truth. I thank you that it is to be handled accurately. I thank you, Father, that it requires diligence, that uh, the study of your truth is not something that should be approached uh, with uh, sloppiness or with uh, uh, irreverence. Father, we, uh, as Moses, removed his uh, shoes to approach on holy ground, so we too, Father, want to reflect the uh, the fear and trembling before your uh, majesty and recognizing that even the privilege of studying the Bible is is grace all the way, Father. Who are we that uh, you should unfold your thinking and, and make it clear to each one of us? So, Father, thank you for this uh, study. Thank you for the encouragements we can have related to the burial and resurrection of our Savior, for the uh, great joy that it gives us in knowing that uh, death no longer has its victory. Death no longer has its sting that the grave is only a, a place of, of uh, deposit where the body can rest until such time as the body itself springs forth, resurrected and glorified, Father. Oh, that it were today. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.